welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Well, if you ever get to Branson, I hope that you take the opportunity, and I'd like to suggest that you take the opportunity to visit Sight and Sound Theater. How many of you guys have been to Sight and Sound? It's pretty amazing if you haven't been there. Uh, the first time Jessica and I went, we were dating, and we were able to go. If you, well, let me back up. If you're not aware of what Sight and Sound is, it is a theater in Branson, and they do biblical plays on stories of people in the Bible. The first time Jessica and I went, we went and saw Moses, and we made the decision, we're going to try to go see everyone they have. They get a new one every two years. So since that time, we've seen Moses, we've seen Samson, we saw Jesus and Noah, and just a few weeks ago, we got away for a couple days, and we were able to go see the newest play playing there called Esther. Now, sight and sound is so good. Like, I walk in, and before the music starts playing, before the curtains go up, I start crying. That's like how good it is. Like, I'm sitting in there, and I'm reading the thing, and I'm like, the actress's name is, you know, like Jessica. That's going to be wonderful. It is that good because I know God is fixing to teach me something. I know that it is going to be encouraging and it's going to be amazing. This last play I went to, though, completely blew me away. When you go to Sight and Sound, the stage is not just a stage like this that you see. The stage wraps around you. I've got a picture of that coming up up here. The stage is, is in front of you, and it's on both sides of you, and the play takes place in the aisles and above your head and everything like that. And we went to Esther, and they have built an entire city that you sit in the midst of while you watch this play. Um, as you're watching this, all kinds of things happen. I'm a mechanically-minded person. Person. So I loved all the stuff that was moving, like parts of the set would detach and drive themselves onto center stage. Things would pop up from the floor. There were things coming down from the ceiling above you. Horses would come running by you in the aisles. It is a completely immersive system. Now, as I watched this, I was kind of amazed at the amount of coordination that they had for all these pieces to move. This thing is like the Taylor Swift errors tour of biblical plays. It's like just all kinds of stuff moving, always something going. And I watched as these, these thousands thousands of pounds of equipment moved around on the stage, sometimes within inches of each other, and didn't hit each other. And, and as we were about halfway through the play, I was enjoying the play, I was enjoying the singing and the acting, but I realized something. That what's going on here is not just the actors that I can see in front of me. That there is a crew of people who may be even more important than the actors who are coordinating all the movements of the curtains up and down, of the lights turning on and off, all of the parts moving to perfection. For the two and a half hours we were there, we did not see a single mistake. It was like a well-choreographed dance. So what I saw was something where a bunch of people, whether they were actors or singers, whether they worked in technology, they had the set moving, the songs playing at the right time, the music going, the lights and the curtains in perfect, uh, in perfect harmony with each other. Here's what I'm getting at is when you see things working with a purpose and you see them working perfectly, what that means is there's generally a group of people behind it who are working together in unity. And I think of that as, as us as a church. What's important about a church is not who's on the stage. It's not important about who gets to sing in the morning. What's important is that we come together as a group of people. We come here with a purpose and we come here in unity. 
If you're just joining us, we started a series a couple weeks ago called Ecclesia. If you're not familiar with that word, Ecclesia is the Greek word that we translate in your Bible, church. And when you look at the, the direct uh, translation of these words, a lot of times you'll find a deeper meaning than the English word that we translated them to. So while we think of church, we think of a building or an assembling time. The word in Greek literally means a called out assembly. Those who belong to God called together to assemble ourselves to make what we call the church. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the purpose of the church, which is to glorify God. Last week, we looked at the mission of the church, the great commission to make disciples and to teach them. And here's what I found is that there is an effect if we go into the purpose and the mission of the church with agreement and with focus. An effect of that will be unity in our church because we're all working in the same direction. So what we see with this is there is a causality. If we are focused on our purpose and our mission, we will be unified. But you also see the reverse of that. You see a correlation as well. If we are unified, we accomplish our mission. And if we happen to see that our church is not accomplishing our mission, if we've moved away from our purpose or our mission, most of the time what you will find is that we are not unified because of that or that we are not accomplishing our mission because we were not unified. Now, we've been looking at a bunch of verses in Acts, and I know I told you to go to Philippians 2. I will be with you in just a second. But right now, I want to just kind of go over the entire book of Acts, and I want to look at what the book of Acts says about the church. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the book of Acts and, and the church in Jerusalem that taught us what church is when it comes to community. Last week, we looked at uh, the church in Antioch, which was living out the Great Commission. But what you'll find in Acts is if you look at the early church, it will be described continuously by one word. So read the, or listen to these verses and I'm going to give you a test. I want you to see if you can figure out what the one ver or the one word that stands out is. This is Acts 1:14. It says, "These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers." Acts 2:1, "When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place." Acts 2:46, "So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and Simplicity of heart. Acts 5:12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. 1525. Let's see if you can figure this out. You guys, class participation. I'm going to pause and I want you to see if you can guess what set of words comes next. Are you ready? 1525. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. You guys figured it out. The word that is used to describe the early church the most in act, Acts is one accord. Now here, here's a point of, of doctrinal significance I want you to get right here. Do you guys know what kind of car the early apostles drove? It was a Honda and they only had one of them and they were all in it at the same time. Oh, come on, guys. That was funny. I know you guys don't think I'm funny, but I am. No, no the, the Bible tells us that the early church was in one accord, not the car. The Greek word here is hamathamadon, and that's a combination of two words that mean to rush along, one word rush along, and another word in unison. I love looking at Greek words because sometimes they will paint a physical picture of what they're trying to communicate. You can see a picture here of a group of people in one location and all of a sudden they start moving in unison, everybody moving the same direction. That's what one accord means. 
is a group of people all going the same direction at the same time. Now, when we talk about the Bible, or I'm sorry, when we talk about the church, it is so important for us to move in the same direction at the same time. Your first take-home truth, if you're keeping up with them, is a church is unified by its pursuit of purpose and mission. If we want to accomplish unity, if we want to accomplish one accord in our church, our direction has to be defined and we have to have an agreement on that direction. Otherwise, what you have is you have a group of 100 people in the same location and somebody yells, go! And everybody starts going in 100 different directions. Some people go down this path, other people go down this path, some go through the trees, some climb the trees because, you know, some of y'all are just really special. Like, like we have to define a direction or we will all go separate ways. Now, what we're blessed, is, blessed with is the Bible defines the direction for us. The Bible defines our purpose and mission. Our purpose is to glorify God, and our, and our mission is the great commission to make disciples and to grow them. That is what the church stands for. That is what we exist to do. That is what we are supposed to rush along in unison to do. Um, earlier this summer, I told you, I think, part of this story. I had several of my friends decided they, they were out of shape, and so they then decided I was out of shape, and they decided we were going to go run a 5K that had, like, all this crawling through the mud stuff. And when we got there, we were a little bit confused because we had to park, but once we found the starting point, they, they stood us all there, and they let about a group of 10 to 20 go at one time, and they would basically say, three, two, one, go, and they'd ring a bell. I don't know. It was a kind of a bad 5K. But anyway, so they'd ring a bell, and you'd all take off running. But throughout the entirety of this course, they had people stationed everywhere you could get off track. And they would point you back on track. No, the path is that way. You don't want to go down what looks like a path. You want to stay on the defined path to get to the finish line, which ends back where you started. What the Bible does for us is it gives us the defined path of what we as a church are supposed to do so that we can move in the same direction in unity. Now, I said this earlier that there's a causality here is that unity is created when we agree and focus on our mission and purpose. But there's also a correlation is that our mission and purpose are accomplished because of our unity. What you'll see is scripturally, God works in the church, not when we're disunified, just, yeah, you got it, but when we are unified. That's when God likes to work in his people, when we glorify him by being in one accord, in one heart, in one mind. Go, going back to those, those verses that I, I read to you just a second ago, those are not just verses where I looked up the same word. Those are instances when something big was happening. God was doing something big in the church, and it's like he put this little placeholder in here. Look, I did something big, and understand the condition of people's heart when I did it is my people were unified in purpose and focus and mission at that time. Uh, just going back over these again, Acts uh, 1.14, these continue with one accord in prayer and supplication of the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. That verse is written right before they make the decision to find the 12th apostle, the replacement for Judas. 2.1 talks about the day of Pentecost when they were in one accord. That is written um, just immediately before the Bible records how God gives us the Holy Spirit. The greatest gift that God gives us as believers is that he he lives in us and he works within us. The day that we received the Holy Spirit for the first time, the disciples were one accord. Acts 2.46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This is at a time that the church is being described as a growing community. There's love and joy. And it says in the very next verse, people were being saved daily. 
every single day somebody was being saved and God says, oh yeah, my people were in one accord. They were rushing along in unison. In 512, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people and they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. This is immediately after a passage that says 3,000 people came to Christ and were added to the church. In Acts 15, 25, when it says that they were assembled in one accord, this is when they are deciding the first major doctrinal debate of the church and that is if you could be a Christian, if you could be saved if you weren't a Jew. And the apostle said, yes, Gentiles can be saved without having to become Jewish first. That's good news for me and you because we are Gentiles. And it's like, it's like God is yelling at us in all of these things. I'm a big God. I have big plans. I will do great things. And great things happen when the posture of the heart of my people is unity, when they're in one accord, when they're together. Your second take-home truth is this, is, is God does big things in the church when the church is unified. So follow my train of thought here, and if I'm wrong, you can yell it out, but I don't think I am. If the purpose of our church is to glorify God, and the mission of our church is to reach people for God, and those things are achieved when the church is unified, it seems important to me that we should focus on and protect unity of the church. Is that correct? So with that in mind, what I want to ask us and what I want to ask of Scripture is what can steal unity from a church? As we come here today, what can cause us, instead of rushing along in one direction, what can cause us to begin to go different ways and to be disunified? You'll find that answer where, where I directed you to earlier in Philippians 2, if you still got your Bible open. If you waited for me this long, in Philippians chapter 2, read with me uh, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any love or any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We see that word again. Here, here's, here's how Paul goes about this. He says, if these things exist, if there is consolation in Christ, if you have comfort of love, if there is fellowship of the Spirit, if there is affection and mercy, if those things are actually true, if they actually exist, do this next thing. And, and I love the way Paul does it. He phrases it as a question, but it's, I don't know if this is the exact correct terminology, but it's, it's much like a rhetorical question because those are the basic principles of our faith. If those principles don't exist, we have no faith. So what he's actually saying is these are not maybes, these are absolutes. And because these things exist, here is your response to the love of God in you, that you as followers of Christ be like-minded, having the same love, walking in one accord. Here's what the Bible assumes about us, is that our response to our faith in God, our response to our relationship with Him, is that we will walk in one accord with other believers, that we will adhere to the mission and the purpose of His children. We will join together and rush along in unison with other believers. See, there's an assumption in Scripture that when you are saved, when you become a follower of Christ, it will change your relationship with God and it will change your relationship with other people. 
That, that's part, not all, that's part of what salvation does for us. I've heard it put this way, is that when we get saved, we have vertical healing. Our relationship up and down with God is, is healed, and our horizontal relationships are healed as well. And that makes sense, because if you see what salvation is all about, it's about saving us from sin, pulling us out of our sin. Sin has destroyed both of those relationships. Go back to Genesis 3. We're going we're gonna to study that. That's the next thing we're going to study is the creation story. If you go back to Genesis 3, think about the story. You know it. You've known it since you were little. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God says, you can have everything except for that one tree. Don't eat of that one tree. Satan comes to Eve and says, go ahead and eat it. God is trying to steal something from you. He's trying to hide from you. You want to be like God? Eat the tree. Eve eats it. She says it's good. She gives it to Adam. He eats it. What happens next? Relationships were destroyed. God comes walking through the garden, and Adam and Eve are hiding from him. He says, why are you hiding? Did you eat the fruit? And suddenly there was a brokenness in that relationship. But there was also a horizontal broken relationship too. Because you look at Adam and for the first time, instead of saying, this is my beautiful wife, what does he say to God? Oh God, it was that woman. We see conflict between us and God. We see conflict between us and others. And so when Jesus comes here, when, when we are saved and he heals the conflict between us and him, it also begins to heal the conflict between us and others. This is one of the original um, points of moving away from sin. If you look at the Bible, it screams all the time of healing those relationships. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. The Ten, Ten Commandments are, are, you know, they're not all the rules, but they're kind of like the overview, the do's and don't do's. The first half of the Ten Commandments all deal with our relationship with God. Have no idols, have no other gods before me. The second half of those Ten Commandments deal with our horizontal relationships. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie to each other. Don't murder each other. Again, Jesus was asked, he was asked one time, he said, hey, what's, what's the most important commandment? What they were asking him is, what is the most important thing to God? And Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The vertical relationship. And then he added to it and he said, but love your neighbor as yourself also. There's your horizontal relationship. Being followers of Christ gives us the ability to heal relationships horizontally because God has healed our relationship vertically. Your third take-home truth is this, is a healed relationship with God moves us to heal earthly relationships. Now, if you continue on in Philippians chapter 2, it gives you the enemy of one accord. It gives you the exact opposite of what it looks like to be unified. So read with me verse 3. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Here is the enemy of one accord, selfish ambition that elevates me and devalues others. Conceit, which tells me I am better and more important than others for whatever reason I decide. And by comparison, everybody else is below me. And looking out for the interest of myself over the interest of others. In a word, what he's saying is, don't be selfish. Now, maybe you're like me this morning and you're here. And if you look in the mirror really closely, you might find that in your heart. You might find a little bit of selfish ambition, a little bit of conceit, a little bit of looking out for my interests more than I look out for others. 
I found that this morning when I got here, the first thing I do on Sunday morning is I get here and pray. And I'm going to tell you all a secret, and please don't hold this against me. A lot of times I wake up on Sunday mornings and I am cranky. I believe it's spiritual warfare, but I am a cranky person on Sunday mornings walking up here. And I got here and I was praying this morning. I was praying through this, through this message and, I, and it just kind of hit me. It's like, the reason you're cranky this morning is selfish ambition. The reason you're cranky this morning is conceit. You're, you're frustrated with this or you don't like that or, or you want something that you can't have. And that's causing you to, to lose your focus on what you're doing here. Now, in a perfect world, I would be the only person in this church that walked in that way this morning. But we're all human beings. And I suspect I'm not the only person that walked into this church a little bit selfish this morning. I'm not the only person who walked in here a little bit conceited, a little bit prideful. If I had to guess, this is not a reflection on you, I'd say it was probably all of us walked in that way. But if we, if we see that in our heart, I've got good news for you and something that encourages me is Philippians 2 was written to followers of Christ. God knows and he records it in his scripture that we're going to struggle with this, but he gives us a command which means we have a choice. I love when the Bible commands us because what he's saying is you get to pick which way you go. Here's the way you should go. And here's what the Bible's telling us is, is we have the choice. We can pick to make the most port or our most important desire to glorify God, or we can make our most important desire my preferences and my opinion. And what the Bible says here is choose to care for the needs of others. Choose to care for the mission more so than yourself. Uh, when I do marriage counseling with couples, um, one of the books I reference is called His Needs and Her Needs. And what it is, is it's written for stupid people like me who might go into a marriage and not understand women um, or, or women who might not understand men. And what it does is they, they spend a lot of time asking women, what do you need in a relationship? What is, it, what is it that you really expect from a husband? And the same thing, they ask men, what do you really expect from your wife? And what they've done is they've written this whole book that says, men, your wives need these seven things. Every woman is going to want some degree of these seven things. Women, your husbands are going to need these seven things. You need to provide it for them. And at the beginning of the book, the thesis of the book is this, is that relationships, whether a marriage, a friendship, I would say a church, we've used this at school when we taught kids, relationships are like bank accounts. I'm going to use that at my next wedding. Relationships are like bank accounts. Relationships are like a bank account. You know how a bank account works. A bank account is a great thing as long as you put more money into it than you take out. But the second you start taking out more money out of that bank account than you're putting in, you've got problems with the bank. Relationships with other individuals are the same way. If you put in more deposits into that relationship, you serve somebody else's needs more then you take away from them or expect them to serve you. What you'll find is harmony within that relationship. The thesis of this book was this, is that divorces and adultery most commonly happen when people are not meeting the needs of their spouse. I would say that that's true for a church. Disunity in a church most often happens when we begin to say, you're going to do this for me, I want it my way, we're going to have it my way, and I don't care about your way. Very rarely will we fight with somebody who walks in and goes, my only goal today is to make you happy. So as we come here as a church, here's what the Bible is saying. is we look out for the needs of others more than we look out for our own needs and our own desires and what we want and we desire. That is how we hold unity in the church. 
And I asked myself this week, how, how does this apply to Ramsey Heights? You know, where, where, where is the most likely place for a fracture in the unity of our church? And here's where I found it. Did you know that you go to a church this morning where there are people here who are less than one years old and people here who are in their mid-90s? Isn't that amazing? That is a cross-section of the kingdom of heaven where we can come together with people completely different than us and say what unites us is stronger than what divides us. The unity in our Savior is greater than the diversity of our ages. That is an amazing thing, and I'm so thankful that we have a church that can serve the needs of so many different people, and I want to grow and serve the needs of many different people. But here's what happens is because we come from different backgrounds, we're different ages, we come from different places in life, Sometimes those are the things that grate on us the most. It's the, it's the things that somebody who comes from a different background than us wants to do. So let, let me say this as a side note and then we'll move on. If you are here and you're part of an older generation, I, I just want you to know and I want you to hear it from me that the younger generations are weird. They, yeah, those college kids, we talked about them last week. <laughs> this Scott got his amen in. Younger generations don't dress the way you were taught to dress to come to church. Younger generations are always looking at their phone. Younger generations live with a different outlook than you, but younger generations were placed in this church by God. They are part of the present, and they are a whole lot of the future of the, of the Church of Ramsey Heights. God has a plan and a purpose for them. And because that, they are important and their needs and their desires are important and it is our job to serve them and make sure this is a place where they can grow, can be discipled, and can feel comfortable. And I just hope that you'll look at a younger generation, even if you don't agree with them and if you guys can't agree on anything, look at them with a heart of celebration that they're here and a heart to mentor them, not to see them as a threat to your church. If you consider yourself one of the younger generations, there's some of you here who are the older generation and you're still going, that's me, I'm the younger generation. If you're here and you're part of the younger generation, let me say this. The older generations here were placed here by God. They are precious to Him and they are precious to Ramsey Heights. And they're, they're a little bit different than you. They, they have some values they don't have. I referenced Taylor Swift earlier. They don't know who Taylor Swift is. They don't understand. They understand a lot of things that you don't, and you understand some things they don't. But God has worked in them and is continuing to work in them. You're sitting in a church building this morning that was built by generations previous to you by work of people who served God in this location. God has a plan for those generations. He, he loves them, and they're, they're so valuable. And my, and my encouragement to you would not to be looked to look at an older generation as an obstacle to change that you want to see in a church, but be thankful that God has placed people in our lives that we can give honor to and learn from. This is where unity is found. When we focus on the value of people that are different than us, then focus on the problems people that are different than us are, can create. Now, last time I, I spoke on this, I had a family member who visited the church and uh, later called me and asked me, who are you mad at? Can't tell which group of people you were getting after. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not aiming this at any particular person. I'm not, you know, saying, hey, this group or that group. I'm not doing that. I'm not aware of that. Although, let me say this. If you feel like I'm aiming it at you, it probably opens something up in your heart you need to deal with. But the focus of this is preventative. We want to prevent disunity in the church, not pick up the pieces of the church after discontent. 
It's like changing the oil in a vehicle. Some of you might need to hear this more than you need to hear the rest of it. You have to change the oil in your vehicle or it will blow up. It's preventative maintenance. And so what we're doing here this morning is preventative maintenance for the safety of our church and for the glory of God and for the ability to accomplish his mission. We put the needs of others before ourselves because our needs are not what's important in this building. What's important in this building is what God wants and what God desires. Your next two take-home truths, number four and five, they're coming up together. His personal selfishness and a divided church does not glorify God. I'm going to say that again. Personal selfishness in a divided church does not glorify God. And number five, a church that is diverse and unified does glorify God. What glorifies God is when people that are different come together and they're still unified through their differences. So very quickly before we leave, I know we're running out of time, I want to talk about what the Bible says, how we deal with diversity, whether that's generational diversity, whether you have a personal problem with somebody in the church, somebody has wronged you, a friendship has broken up, how do we deal with that? You'll find that in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20 here. This is, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more than that. By, mouth, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And if he refuses to hear you, hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be uh, to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Here, here's what these verses talk about. If we have a disagreement amongst ourselves, if we have some degree of disunity, the Bible calls us to reconcile it quickly, peacefully, and effectively. And because we are not very smart, it gives us a breakdown of how to do this. Number one, you go talk to somebody alone. Number two, if that doesn't work, you get two or three more people to come with you. You get more eyes on the conversation. If that still doesn't work, this is going to sound insane. But it's what Jesus Christ himself said. In that case, you take it to the church. You bring it to the rest of us. And you come to the church and say, we're having this disagreement, we're having this problem, and the job of the church is to be a voice of reconciliation, to bring unity into disagreement. And we come to the church willing to submit ourselves to the, to the will of the whole. And if none of those things work, at that point, you treat somebody as a tax collector, which simply means that you love them, but you set yourself aside from them. Now, what we would be tempted to do is be pulled into somebody else's game. We don't engage in their sin with pettiness and gossip and anger and fighting. We, we call our, or the Bible calls us to pursue to them. I won't play your game of fighting with you, but I'll pray for you. And unity, here's what I like about this. Unity is so important to God that he's willing to call us into hard things. It is so hard when you have a problem with somebody to walk up to them and, and humbly say, something's wrong and I need to talk to you. It's hard to do that with your family members. It's hard to do that with your spouses. It's hard to do that with people you go to church with. But God calls us to do hard things for the sake of unity of his church. It's hard to grab two or three more people and say, I need you to put some eyes on this disagreement because we can't figure it out. Can you come give us some insight to this? It's hard to go to a church and it's hard to be a church who has to step into disunity. It's hard for us to, to come into this and say, this, this is the decision we're going to make. But Jesus calls us to do that because it is worth it to God that his church and his believers are unified. Now, last thing, I know we're, we're running out of time. We're out of time. Last thing. This doesn't work 
when you just want to vent all your problems to somebody or about somebody. Never in the history of the world has somebody who barely speaks to somebody else walks up to him and goes, I got a problem with you. And the person goes, yeah, let's hear about it. That's wonderful. It's <laughs> not how it works. This is meant to be used inside of a unified relationship that the Bible calls us to as believers. I love Sam Pittman, the head coach of the Razorbacks. And, and one of the things I love about him is, is the integrity that he, uh, uh, that he leads with. And one of the things that, that he, I heard him say when he first took over the coach at Arkansas, he says, we train our coaches to never be louder than they are when a kid does something right. That means these coaches are going to holler and they're going to scream and yell, but they're going to do it as celebration, not in tearing somebody down. And then within that relationship, within that positive culture and community, then when you need to correct something, you correct it quietly and you correct it humbly. I believe that's what God calls us to do as a church. We gather around each other. We celebrate each other. We celebrate each other's um, differences. We celebrate how we win together. And when something needs to be corrected, we correct it within that culture of love and celebration. Your last take-home truth this morning is this, is, is number six. A church that is unified begins pursuing reunification long before a disagreement. Rick and Ms. Galena, if you guys want to start to make your way up here. And in this, we, we share the heart of Jesus Christ. The, the glory of God, is, uh, the glory, the way a church glorifies God is we share the heart and the character of Jesus Christ with the world. And nowhere is that seen better than in how we handle disagreements and how we handle fights. The way we treat people who we can't get along with. Because here's the heart of Christ. There was a time when you and I were separated from him. We had walked away from him. We had done the bad thing. The relationship was not broken because he broke it. The relationship was broken because we chose to leave him. And yet he came here and he did the work to pursue reunification with us. He came here to seek us out and he did it at great cost. He did the hard things. It took his life on a cross in order for us to be his. Maybe this morning what you need to hear is not reunification of the church. You need to hear get saved and be part of the church. Today can be that day for you because what we're talking about is exactly what Christ did for you. But if you are a believer, I just want to ask you this morning, as we pray during our response time, to ask God to reveal to you any hard spots in your heart, any places where you might not be a unifying church member or a unifying believer, and leave those here today. As we stand, don't leave here the same way that you walked in. Let's stand and worship.